on, on December 18th of this year, it was our last Sunday at the YMCA, we uh, basically wrapped up the service, and anyone who was there was conscripted into our small army of people that literally took everything that was ours out of the YMCA and left with it in about an hour span. TVs were taken off the walls, cables were pulled out, Ethernet cables were pulled out of the ceilings, kids' class stuff, the closet was emptied. The only thing that was left was the air conditioners in the windows that we put in, which we'll come back and get soon. Um, if anybody needs a 220-volt air conditioner. It was our own exodus of sorts that happened very quickly, quicker than I thought it was going to, uh, and just... Man, it was amazing. It was amazing to see how quickly the, the group worked together to make that happen. Um, today, we're kicking off a series through the book of Exodus, a story that's familiar to some of you, maybe unfamiliar to others. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's fine. But in this book of Exodus, you know, it's this famous story that's been, been made into different movies and, and uh, animation, animated films of the people of Israel and their quick departure, gathering all of their stuff, including the bones of Joseph, wild, and taking it and leaving Egypt. You see, if you remember the story, just briefly going back to Abraham, one of the patriarchs of the faith, we talked about him in the last Gospel Family Tree series. Uh, Abraham's family, eventually through Isaac, Jacob, his sons, end up enslaved in Egypt. We'll get into some of that today. They're there for 400 years, and eventually God sends a deliverer through a guy named Moses who leads the people out of Egypt. They get chased until they get to the edge of the Red Sea. If you remember, there's this dramatic rendering of this in different films where the Red Sea is parted, and the people walk through it dramatically rescued and brought to the other side. And then on the other side, sort of the second half of the book of Exodus, we see that they are formally, again, made the covenant people of God at Mount Sinai, where they're given the Ten Commandments and and recommissioned to be the people of God, and he would be their God, and they would be his people. And then the rest of the book is spent looking at the building of the tabernacle, where God's presence would come and dwell with the people. But all of it is called the Exodus. This is the second book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus. And there's sort of bookends in the, in the structure of this book that I find fascinating. And in the first chapters we'll see today, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, are stuck in Pharaoh's household, as it were. They're stuck doing his bidding, building his temples, his complexes, his cities. It's all in his house, and they can't get out of it outside of the redemption of God. And then the other end of the book, we see that they've been set free, and now they're building the, the house of God, the tabernacle. And the last chapter in Exodus, what we see is, whereas they were, used to not be able to get out of Pharaoh's household, now they can't get into God's household. The book ends with the tabernacle built, but Moses is on the outside looking in, because God's glory is so strong. You need the book of Leviticus to see how to go into the tabernacle. It's a fascinating little bookend to this. And uh, one of the commentaries I was reading uh, by a guy named Christopher Wright he draws out three themes that I want to sort of just put into our heads now, and we'll kind of dance around them as we move through this series. But the first theme that comes out in the book of Exodus is, is that Yahweh is the Redeemer God. He's the rescuer. He's the one who is doing this, the saving work of the people of Israel. Yahweh is the Redeemer God. The people of Israel are his covenant people. That's the second theme. Yahweh is the Savior. 
The people of Israel are his covenanted people. They are, for, they are his people and he is their God. And then the third thing, the third theme you see come out, particularly in the second half of the book, is, is the, the blessing and the danger of the presence of God. That God with us, God with them, was a blessing and pretty darn dangerous, as we'll see unfold in the book of Exodus. But this book is like the, the defining book with the defining events that really paint the picture, the full picture of who God is. By the time we get to Jesus, you see, oh, you see all these things from Exodus start coming forward into the story. This is the book that like defines the people of Israel, the Jewish people. This is the one that they go back to regularly. It comes up in the Psalms regularly. Like it's remember what happened at the Exodus. It is the book with the defining events, which is namely the Exodus and the Sinai Covenant. Today, as we get into chapter one, here's what's on my heart. Is this, this idea that I kind of want to focus on is that God, Yahweh, God will not, cannot, will not be stopped from fulfilling his covenant promises to his covenant people. It's, it's kind of hidden in this first chapter, but God will not be stopped from fulfilling the things that he said he's going to do for his covenant people, which I would argue today is me and you through Christ. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to the last chapter of Genesis, and hopefully if your Bible is arranged like mine, you'll see Exodus right after that as well. The book of Exodus starts with the word end, A-N-D. And is a conjunction, meaning something that went before it connects to it now, right? You have Genesis and Exodus is really what's happening. All right, so it doesn't come through in the English. It doesn't often get translated there. It typically starts with, like, these are the names of the descendants. But the first word in Hebrew is and. It's a continuation of the Genesis narrative. Now, if you remember what's happened to Genesis, like I said, Abraham was promised children. He ends up having Isaac, who ends up having Jacob, who has these 12 sons, the, the leader of which ended up being Joseph, who was the savior of the people. He's in Egypt, and, the, and Joseph and his brothers, they, they need food, so his brothers end up going to Egypt, and Joseph rescues them. Remember, he was, he was like the favorite of the Pharaoh at that time, this like kind of good Pharaoh, as it were, who through Joseph rescues Jacob's sons. And so they're all there together. And it seems like they're there for some time. They're raising children there. They're putting down roots there. And so at the end of the Genesis narrative... Here's what happens as we move into the first 14 verses of Exodus. Joseph, remember he's the kind of rescue brother, said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning you're going to get out of here someday. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath, saying, when God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here, Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. I think Joseph was mummified. Seriously, like this is what I think is happening here, is they're preserving his body, and someday you see it later in the Exodus that they take his body and they leave for the promised land with it. It's fascinating. So then, start of Exodus, and continuing on in this narrative, 
And these are the names of the sons of Israel, or Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already or had already been in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. Listen to the verbs in this verse 7. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them or swarming with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph, basically paid him no mind, came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people or the sons of the people or the, the people of the sons of Israel, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemy, fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pitham and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, listen to this, the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now listen to the verbs here. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So here you have Joseph, the end of Genesis, having rescued his family. Jacob, his father, and his other 11 brothers and family members rescued them. And by the time you get to Exodus, it says that they are 70 people. Nice round number, sort of a number of perfection in the Old Testament. It's this round number of 70 people. One of the things that we're going to see in Exodus repeatedly, and I think we're seeing here in this number 70, is what's called a signpost. Uh, N.T. Wright uses this word often, maybe because he's British and you see a lot of these in Europe. It's these British signposts. Now, if you look on one side, it says, I'm used to having a monitor in the back. I can't even, I don't even know what it says anymore. A town to the east and a town to the west. If you're standing at the signpost and you've come from the west, you now know it's that far to the west, to that town that we just came from, and it's that far to the east to that town that we're going to. The signpost says where we've come from and where we are going. Exodus is full of signposts. This number 70 is a signpost. It's reminding the people, like say this Exodus story was read during the exile, right? Hundreds of years later when the people are stuck in Babylon or something and they're reading this story. It's reminding them of where they came from, which was where? Abraham, who had how many children at the start? Zero. Here's where we are now. We're saying we're 70. And where we're going is multiplied, 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 which we see in verse 7, fruitful, beyond imagination. See, all throughout Exodus, we're going to see these signposts, and Pastor Adam and I are going to keep trying to draw them out because you know where they all point to eventually? Jesus and our part in his church. So there's this signpost of 70, right? They came from nothing in Abraham, and now they're going to this great multiplied people who are now a nation. If you go back to verse 7, listen to the Genesis language in this, all right? The creation story. Uh, 
But the Israelites were fruitful, increased uh, rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Do you remember the commands in Genesis? God creates Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Oh, all right, now we're getting a bit of a creation narrative coming through here in the first pages, the first sentences of this continuing narrative in Exodus. There's this this fulfillment of the Genesis commands to procreate, to fill the earth. In verse 9, we start to see that now it's fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant that happened back in Genesis 15, where God said, I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a nation. When Pharaoh says that he's concerned about the Israelites, when he says, I'm concerned, like there's, there's a lot of them now, the wording there is, is almost like he's saying, I'm concerned about this other nation. You see a fulfillment of Genesis 15, of Genesis 1 and 2, of multiplying, filling the earth. So what's happening, what the, what the author wants us to see is where we've come from and where we are now and where we're going, and that is a big old people of God who came from nothing. Why? Because God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He's fulfilling his promises to the covenant people that I'm going to multiply you, I'm going to make you a great nation. But as we move on, we see that it's happening in the midst of turmoil. It's happening in the midst of stress, in the midst of badness, in the midst of evil, like nothing we've probably ever faced. You see, the people of God, as they're growing, now have a new enemy, Pharaoh. This story, if it had been read to an exiled people, if you've got heroes and villains in this story, the heroes, you know, Abraham, his name gets mentioned. Pharaoh, boo. It's an oral culture, right? They're sharing this story. And so now introduced into the plot line is this enemy of God. Meanwhile, all this creation and multiplication is happening in the midst of all of this pain. Pharaoh comes on the scene, and he's this enemy of the people. Really, he's an enemy of Yahweh, of God's multiplying force, of God saying, I'm going to do something big with you. You're going to fill the earth. Oh, does this sound familiar? Oh, Genesis 3. You have God tell the people, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to grow you. You're going to grow, and you're going to fill the earth. And along comes an enemy of God that says, I don't want that. That's an affront to my kingdom. I'm going to destroy that. And so here, Pharaoh, I believe, is also representative of the great Satan, the evil one that is always against God's ways and against God's people. And what does Pharaoh do? In the midst of this multiplication that's happening, he makes them work, work, work. You see five different iterations of that verb there of work. Work them with their crushing work is what it says in Hebrew. Just crushing them with all of this work to build his empire Notice what he has them doing, building their buildings, farming their fields. Let that settle in. Work, work, work to build my empire. I don't like your empire. I don't like what's happening with this people. We are going to crush it. We are going to subjugate it. The word work, as we'll see as, as we move along in the text, this word work is actually connected to the idea of serving, which is actually connected to the idea of worship. And so now you have these people of God who are being forced to work to serve this other guy who only wants to worship himself. Work is not bad. 
Genesis 1 and 2 had work, my friends. Having a vocation, like we need a better theology of vocation, but work is okay. But they were working, doing the wrong things for the wrong master. And that work becomes servitude, becomes worship. Of not, they're not necessarily worshiping Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's worshiping himself. It's an empire that's opposed to God's kingdom. They're doing the wrong kind of work for the wrong kind of master. They are enslaved. Which ultimately, I would argue, is what we are like when we are stuck in sin. We're serving something else. We're worshiping something else. At the, defin- at the core of sin is worship, just worshiping the wrong master, doing the wrong things for the wrong people. And so they're growing, they're multiplying. Pharaoh is introduced to the story, boo, hiss. He's this enemy of God. He's opposed to them. He wants to crush them with crushing work. He doesn't want them to grow, but they are growing in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of pain. I don't know what we're going to face this year in 2023, but by God's grace, we can still grow in the midst of pain, in the midst of struggle. There will be, there will be pain and struggle in 2023. But here the people of God are growing. They're multiplying. The promise of family is coming true. The promise of nation is coming true. But the promise of land is not. They're stuck in Pharaoh's household. The promised land has not come to fruition. And the promise of God's presence seems somewhat removed. As we read on, you see that God is kind of silent in this story. He doesn't say anything. I think the author of this wants to build a little bit of the drama. Where's God? Where's God in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my turmoil? Anybody ever ask that question? But see, here's why I would argue that God fulfills his promises. God knew this would happen. He told Abraham this would happen. Do you know that? All the way back in Genesis 15. Look at this with me. Genesis 15, God's giving this great covenant to Abraham. He's telling him, I'm going to make you a great nation. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring, which he doesn't have any yet, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. God knew what was going to happen. It is both... mm, It's a mystery, and it's encouraging to me that God knows the troubles that are coming our way. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions, which is what we see happen in the Exodus. God knew that they were going to grow. He knew that they were going to become a nation. He knew that they were going to be stuck and enslaved in Egypt, but he would judge that Pharaoh, he would judge that nation, and he would set them free and bring them out. We need to notice that in the midst of all of this, growth is happening. Trouble is happening. Turmoil is happening. Pain is happening. God knows about it. Growth is still happening. They were... The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. Friends, let us think about that and absorb the truth of that. The more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied, the more they grew, the more they lived into the promises of God. God is fulfilling his promise. Silently, it seems. Behind the scenes, it seems. God is fulfilling his promise to grow them in the midst of turmoil and pain. And he does it 
through two unsuspecting characters who get named in this story, which is important. Let's keep reading this narrative. The king of Egypt, so now he's, he's enslaved the people, right? This is like against God's people number one, like lesson number one. Here comes two and three. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Boo. This is what they say. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. <laughs> Little poke. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. There's some scholars, there's a word in here that can be translated two different ways. Some scholars think that actually what they're saying is they give birth like animals. Just pop that baby out and move on with life. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're Egyptian princesses. So much midwifery that needs to happen. This is what, like, they're, like there's satire here. There's a little bit of a poking, a comic poking that's happening here. So God, okay, well, here's, another, here's another thing. We don't have time to get into it. Whole ethical conversation about, they lied. Right? And it's like Rahab when she lies. Eh, what do you do with that? Huh? Seems like there's something bigger happening. So God was good to the midwives. And Pharaoh's plan failed. The people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. More multiplication happening. Do you see it? Pharaoh then commanded all his people. Here's the third thing. You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. These two midwives subvert the empire. Friends, I don't know what your job is or what your role is in life, but you have empire subverting power through Christ. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. We don't know, it's not clear, if these were Hebrew women who were midwives. The one name is Hebrew, so it seems like maybe they were. We don't know if they were Hebrew women who were midwives or if they were Egyptian women who were midwives to the Hebrew women. Which, if they were, fascinating story of another, of a Gentile being brought in who is faithful. Either way, these women are faithful. But who understand and fear God, and it changes the course of their lives and saves many baby boys, who fulfills God's promise, which then fulfills God's promise to multiply and fill the earth. They were faithful. They were God-fearing. Whether they were Egyptian women or Hebrew women, not really the point. They were faithful. And God was at work. Again, God hasn't even spoken in this story yet. But he's rescuing his people. Sometimes God is silently rescuing us. The author, I think, wants us to feel that tension. Where's God? But God is at work behind the scenes using these two women, with probably powerless, but using them powerfully to fulfill his promises to multiply the people and to free them. 
See, God is aware that there is an enemy of his people. He's aware that he has an enemy and he has a plan to deal with him. He will free his people from working for Pharaoh so that they can work for him, so that they can worship him. That's ultimately what happens when Pharaoh frees the people. We see several chapters later, he says, fine, go and worship your God. Go serve him. See, Pharaoh's concern initially became, his his initial concern was what? These people are multiplying, they're getting too strong, they're going to join our enemy and fight against us. And that's exactly what they do, is it not? They link arms with Yahweh, but they don't fight. God fights for them. See, the people find their salvation in God, whose enemy is their enemy. He will defeat Pharaoh, and we will see that in the coming chapters. Israel will learn, people of Israel will learn that that Yahweh is their God, that he is for them, and that they are God's. They're his people, and that salvation and life, the promised land, presence of God are all found in being linked up with God alone. They're not found in Egypt. They're not found in working for Pharaoh. They're found in Yahweh, full life. The promise is coming true. It's all found in Yahweh. The point of all of this, setting the tone here for the rest of the book, is that Yahweh is in control. He knows what's going on. He might be quiet, But he is working nonetheless. And he's using the unlikely and the powerless to fulfill his promises of life, land, and presence. And so these two Hebrew midwives, God blesses them with families. God cares for them. Scriptures tell us that God's eyes are on those who fear him. Now, does it mean that we're always going to be blessed in the way that these... No. In this case, they were. God saw fit to do that. But God's eyes are on those who fear him. And the chapter ends on a cliffhanger. The story ends with Pharaoh gives this mandate to his people, go and kill all the baby boys. What is going to happen? Come back next week for more. Friends, the good news for us this morning is in the gospel... We find some 2,000 years ago in a land ruled by an oppressive dictator in a crushing empire that was forcing people to do its crushing work to build its temples, its complexes, fulfill its idolatrous dreams. A faithful woman would subvert that government. Mary, the, the faithful mother of Jesus who fears God, not the empire, would bring forth the life that would save not only her, but would save Israel from their sins, but not only Israel, the whole world from its sins, from its slavery to sin, to death, to the ultimate Pharaoh of Satan himself. Jesus, God, Emmanuel, God himself would be the enemy of the ultimate Pharaoh. And fight against him on behalf of us. To free us to serve him. To free us to work for him. To free us to worship him. Not the pharaohs of this life. And not to stay enslaved to sin and ultimately 
to death. And so as we move into this new space as a congregation, as a church, as we move into 2023 and we wrap up what may have been a great year for you or a really crappy year for you, I don't know. But as we move into this new time, you can guarantee that as the seeds of the God life are growing in you, there is an enemy who's trying to stop it. As you follow Jesus, as you grow in the gospel, there is an enemy of your soul that wants to stop that. Scriptures say it's the world, the ways of the world. I'm not like fearful of the world. The ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil are all warring against us, against that growth, against that full life that are found in the gospel trying to enslave you, trying to enslave me to do what? Work, work, work. Maybe that work looks like legalism and religion. Work, work, work to try to please God, and you end up enslaved to this system, not experiencing the the freedom of Christ. Work, 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 work. Friends, that is not what life in the body of Christ is meant to feel like. That might take effort, Walk with the Spirit, but it's not work, 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 enslaved to some system to try to make God happy. In Galatians, Paul says, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Don't be enslaved again to that yoke of religion, of moralism, of legalism. Friends, 2023, just know that that's who we are still, just like we were in 2022. Not about religion and legalism, about the gospel and the freedom that is found in it. Christ has set us free to worship him and find freedom. Or maybe the enemy of your soul is telling you to work, to work, to work, and and it's working for these idols, the wrong kind of labor for the wrong kind of leaders, the work, work, work that it takes to get ahead at our jobs, to be significant, to be powerful, to have enough, enough money that I'm somebody. The work, work, work it takes to worship our kids. I say that a couple times a year just to prompt us, because we live in a world that worships its kids, and it runs people ragged. Work, work, work. Wrong labor for the wrong king. Wrong labor for the wrong kingdom. Work, work, work it takes to keep up lying and addiction. Work, work, work to stay in shame. There's an enemy of our soul who wants us to stay there. And I tell you again that Jesus wants to free us to pursue the works of his kingdom. Paul says this in Ephesians. Maybe this is is something you need to meditate on this year. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works, 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 so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Friends, we have been set free by Jesus to join him in doing good works in his kingdom. That is the full life in walking with God in doing the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do to build his kingdom. Make that be the work that you join in with this year. And it is a biblical truth that even though life is hard, and it is, even though life is hard, growth can still happen. Sometimes in spite of pain, sometimes through pain. The older you get, I think the more you start to grasp this. Life has a lot of pain, and in Christ I get to grow in spite of it or through it. Somehow God is using it for my good and for his glory. The more they suffered, the more they multiplied and filled the earth. There's a deeper growth promised to the people of God. A deeper growth than the flesh offers, a deeper growth than Satan offers, a deeper growth than the world offers close with this. Paul talks about this deeper growth in Romans 5. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Friends, we rejoice in our afflictions. It doesn't mean they're easy. But it means even in the midst of them, we can grow. That we can find a deeper character through endurance that actually produces a hope that lasts. Suffering leads to doing away with the flesh, the mind of the flesh that leads to death. And it leads to the mind of the spirit that gives life. It leads to worship. It leads to serving Jesus alone. Friends, God is at work in all of your lives, in my life, and in our congregations. He knows there's an enemy, and he's fighting him on our behalf. He has won the victory in Jesus over sin and death, and he calls us into a new life of victorious living in him by his spirit, believing in the gospel, being set free from sin and death. So like Israel... All those years ago, as we'll see as we travel through Exodus together, like Israel, join yourself to Yahweh, to the redeeming God. Join yourself to your enemy's enemy, God himself, Emmanuel. God cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped. God cannot be stopped from fulfilling his promises to his covenant people. And if you're in Christ, that's you. That's me. That's our churches. Let's pray.